Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. I know people are tired of talking about Donald Trump, and they are especially tired of hearing people criticize Donald Trump. And I understand both of those feelings. And also, we're about to elect another president, and I would like us to learn something. And I would like to elect someone who is not going to be this exposed, at least legally throughout their tenure as president. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone. We are back this week with just truckloads of news and information and lots and lots of things to catch up on. Before we get started, we wanted to remind everyone that we will be on Patreon tonight at 8 o'clock Eastern with a live Ask Us Anything. We had so much fun at the Thank You Patron events. We're going to start doing it monthly. We're getting all kinds of really cool questions from you guys. And it was just like a very fun sort of party atmosphere last time. So come on over to Patreon for our Ask Us Anything. We're also on Patreon taking votes still on everyone's favorite episode of the year, which we will rebroadcast next Tuesday. For our main segment today, we are going to talk about how 
yes, impeachment is unfolding. The president is not a stranger to lawsuits. This is actually Mm -hmm. kind of a comfort zone for him. And we're Mm going to talk through all of the lawsuits that Trump is currently involved in and his history with litigation and sort of how we can be thinking about that as it correlates to his presidency and his campaign for re-election. But first, there is a lot of news to get to, beginning with just a little shout out to our friends across the pond, as they say. Britain will hold its elections on December 12th. These are hugely consequential elections, and we're just thinking about all of you and looking forward to learning about the results. I just feel bad for them. I just feel so sad. And all the reporting is like, everyone is miserable. Nobody's excited. It's the middle of the holiday season and they're having to deal with an election. I feel bad for the people running. I feel bad for the people. I feel bad for the entire country. I'm just going to put that out there right now. All my empathy is for the British people right now. I feel like British people don't want our pity, though. You know, I think they might look at us and say some of the same things. What I love about the parliamentary system and the way the UK operates in general is that they can kind of say, you know what? We don't like how things are going. Let's try this again. Let's try elections again. I'm sure that it stinks to be there right now and in the middle of all this. But I also like give a nod to that form of democracy. See, I disagree. I feel like it's showing the limits of that form of democracy because I still don't think they're going to have a great answer or a coalition at the end of all this. I think Brexit is pushing that system to its brink. Yeah, I think so, too. But sometimes I think it's helpful to keep engaging everybody to say, look, there isn't a fantastic fix here. So what's our next best step? It's almost like an exceptionally pragmatic approach to governing. We also have the House and Senate reaching an agreement on our National Defense Authorization Act. Now, this is one of the 12 appropriation bills that we have to get through to fund our government. Now, we don't know a lot of the details yet, except it seems to contain some sort of deal where President Trump gets his Space Force branch of the military and the Democrats get a parental leave policy for federal employees, which is like one of the biggest areas of progress and rights offered to federal employees in a long time. However, I don't know about this whole Space Force thing. It does sound like there has been kind of a bipartisan consensus that we need to make sure the Space Force doesn't have mission creep and that it's kind Mm. of constrained. It sounds like it's going under the Air Force. You know, it's not its own full branch of the military. It's going to come up through the Air Force that the Air Force has some ideas about things that legitimately are assets we need to protect in space. And so perhaps this is a little bit like me saying to my children, yes, we will get a dog and it being a stuffed animal. You know what I mean? Like Mm. we're kind of giving a little bit here, but it's not perhaps what was in mind in order to gain that compromise. At least that's my basic understanding from what's been reported so far. Well, if I'm being optimistic, just generally, I'm glad they made some sort of progress on government funding, period. Last week, there was a shooting at Pearl Harbor on the naval base. A 22-year-old man used two service weapons. In 23 seconds, he killed two people, wounded Mm -hmm. another, and then killed himself. 23 seconds. The wounded man is in stable condition. 
Following that, over the weekend, on Friday morning, we had a shooting at the naval base in Pensacola, Florida. This is a little bit complicated. The United States provides Pentagon-sponsored training programs related to security cooperation for other countries. We train people on how to use our weapons that often their countries have purchased and on our military doctrine and our tactics. This has been going on since the end of World War II, and the rationale is this is how we build partnerships with other countries. It's how we cultivate our alliances and side benefit. It maintains reliable channels for people to continue to buy arms manufactured in the United States. It's like tech support. Currently, there are over 5,000 students from 183 countries in these programs at 150 military schools across the United States. Saudi Arabia has 852 students in the program. That's about 16% of the total. And one of these students, a member of the Royal Saudi Air Force, opened fire at naval air stations in Pensacola. He killed three people, wounded eight others. The three victims were really young. And if you see their picture, They look so young. One of them was only 19. Two of the men died trying to confront the gunmen to save others. And this is a big problem for the Pentagon. So the FBI has classified this as a terrorist attack. It's not abundantly clear whether the shooter was already radicalized before he came over, if he became radicalized once he was in the United States, but he definitely had anti-American views, anti-Israeli views, and it raises all kinds of questions about this program. Senator Rick Scott wants the program suspended and a review of the program and its vetting process. And Defense Secretary Esper said that they will review the vetting process, but that the program is too important to scrap altogether. You know, I'm not going to read a couple of articles following a shooting incident and decide that I know better than the Department of Defense on whether this program makes sense in 2019 or not. It is concerning to read all of the reports about red flags about this particular individual. And I'm not sure that Senator Scott is wrong in saying we should pump the brakes here in a very big way and make sure that we have really thought through who's in this program and how we keep tabs on who's in this program and what's happening with them um, so that this doesn't become really dangerous. Well, and the other huge component of this, of course, is our relationship with Saudi Arabia. So there have been no consequences for Saudi Arabia for the murder of an American journalist. Um, The Trump administration continues to pursue an incredibly close alliance with Saudi Arabia. This isn't even the first time that radicalized Saudi citizens have attacked America so we all remember many of the attackers on 9-11 were from Saudi Arabia. But the administration has made no sort of requirement that the Saudis fully participate in this investigation. President Trump said, oh, well, they're just as horrified as we are. But there seems to be no willingness, particularly on the part of the Trump administration, to not only think about this program more in depth, but to also think about our relationship with Saudi Arabia. I was thinking, and we've talked about this before, how... Trump is often accused of loving dictators, and I think that there is just truth in that. I mean, you can hear in his own statements, he admires people who sort of get the forcible respect of others. It's also, though, that Russia, North Korea, in some respects, Saudi Arabia, are just big market opportunities. 
for Trump businesses, for other U.S. businesses. And I think a lot about Iran and how the president is willing to just squeeze and squeeze and squeeze Iran. And members of the administration would say, well, we have to preserve this relationship with Saudi Arabia because there is this real threat from Iran and Saudi Arabia is an important partner in dealing with that threat. But if you look at the rest of the administration's Middle East policy, that doesn't seem to be the reason for the relationship with Saudi Arabia, right? It seems to be purely economic. And I've just been thinking about, like, what does this mean? And what does this tell us about the way the administration conducts business with Iran in light of the continued pushing by Saudi Arabia of the United States patience? Does that make sense? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I don't have an answer. I just have lots of questions about that. And I think those questions get magnified when you look at something like the Afghanistan Papers, which is just an incredibly important piece of journalism that is going to be in the history books from Craig Whitlock at The Washington Post. This is very much like the Pentagon Papers released about the Vietnam War. The Post headlined this at war with the truth. U.S. officials constantly said they were making progress. They were not, and they knew it. It's 2,000 pages of previously unpublished notes of interviews with people who played a direct role in the war in Afghanistan, from generals and diplomats to aid workers and Afghan officials. We have these documents because the Washington Post sued to get them under the Freedom of Information Act. They had to do two different lawsuits in a three-year legal battle. And just to kind of reset, we've talked about Afghanistan several times, but it's been a while. We've been there since 2001. More than 775,000 U.S. troops have deployed there, many repeatedly. We've lost 2,300 of our troops. Over 20,000 were wounded in action. 150,000 people altogether have been killed during this war when you include Afghan fighters and citizens, nonprofit and humanitarian workers, journalists, NATO coalition members. So this war has had a lot of human cost and a ton of financial cost. We have spent about a trillion dollars in Afghanistan. And that figure doesn't include money that has been spent by the CIA and the Department of Veterans Affairs taking care of people who've come back with wounds. So just enormously expensive, incredibly dangerous, tragic outcomes. And here we are learning that since 2001, we just really haven't known what we're doing there, who we're fighting, what success looks like. And at every turn, three different administrations, Bush, Obama, Trump, have told us, no, it's going pretty well. We're, we're wrapping this up, guys. So I guess it was probably two years ago I read the book by Barbara Tushman, The March of Folly. And she goes through a couple different historical events. She talks about the medieval popes. She talks about the Revolutionary War. And she talks about the Vietnam War. And the just continued <laughs> march of folly. I mean, that's where the book comes from, that we make the same mistakes over and over and over again. And it is so depressing to have read that, to have read The Imperial Life and the Emerald City, which is about our occupation in Iraq, and see us making the same mistakes at huge financial expense, at the cost of human lives, 
over and over and over again. I mean, what these papers lay out, just like the Pentagon Papers with Vietnam, is just like you said, we didn't have a clear objective. We refused to adapt when the time called for it. Now, it's really interesting because it seemed like they were trying to learn from mistakes in Iraq and come in and, you know, pour billions of dollars into infrastructure in a way that the Bush administration was roundly criticized for not doing in Iraq. But they're not the same country. (laughs) And to just pour, pour billions of dollars basically to the only infrastructure we built was massive levels of corruption that reached the absolute top of the structures of power in Afghanistan when we really should have been spending money sooner on security forces and um, stemming the incredible flow of opium that comes out of Afghanistan. I was particularly struck by one quote. It said, the systematic problem of our government, we can't think past the next election. And that's that to me is the central theme of Vietnam, of Iraq, of Afghanistan. No one is thinking long term. Everyone, even the Obama administration, they want quick results. They want quick turnaround. They either want to pour money and see quick results or they don't want to pour a lot of money because they don't want that to come up in the next election. It's just this obsession with how it is perceived by the American electorate instead of doing what I think great leaders do, which is go out and make their case about why it is the right thing instead of being terrified at every turn that it won't be perceived as the right thing. So they lie. Instead of trying to make an argument and taking the attacks, they lie. And I say they as in the Johnson administration, the Nixon administration, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, the Trump administration. You know, it's just, it's so disheartening. And it's such a illustration of hubris and short-sightedness. And it, it's, it's just hard not to see us make these same mistakes over and over again and not become so hopeless. It's not even the failure to think long-term because in the arc of history, Vietnam was not that long ago. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of what's depressing about this report. There are people in government who lived through Vietnam. Some of the same people were making decisions later. So the inability to learn, it isn't even like we couldn't learn from ancient history. We couldn't learn from very recent history, the effects of which we're still experiencing every single day. And the other thing that really strikes me about this report is that America simply has not learned how to decenter ourselves when we think about our foreign policy. Now, that might sound a little crazy, right? Shouldn't we be the center? Make America great, right? It's all America first, all the things. And I get that. We, we care about our national interests when we act in the world. At the same time, our national interests were not upheld by the work that we did in Afghanistan. I thought this quote from an unidentified government contractor was so poignant. He said that he was expected to dole out $3 million a day for projects Mm -hmm. in one district in Afghanistan, roughly the size of a U.S. county. And he asked a visiting congressman whether the lawmaker could reasonably spend that kind of money back home. He said, hell no. 
Well, sir, that's what you've just obligated us to spend, and I'm doing it for communities that live in mud huts with no windows. We funded infrastructure growth in Afghanistan as though the Afghan culture is like the culture in the Cincinnati suburbs. It could not absorb that amount of money. That's why the corruption, one NGO worker is quoted here as saying like 90 percent of the money was overkill. Afghanistan was just not ready for that kind of funding. We kept trying to build a strong, centralized government in Afghanistan. That is not the culture of the country. And we are completely unable, it seems, to look at another nation and say, hmm, there are people groups here who are different from the citizens of Iowa. There are considerations at work here in terms of history and geography and religion that we can't quite understand. And so perhaps we are not the best people to make decisions for what the future of this nation looks like. And it's easy for me to sit here in the comfort of my house and make that assessment. And I get that. At the same time, It does seem, if you look at history at all, like this is a mistake that we continue to repeat and that it would serve us well to really rethink what we are trying to accomplish when we send our troops out into the world in places that we don't fully understand. What's so frustrating, though, is that you read history of the Iraqi occupation, and if only they were trying to pour that money into that country— at that time. And I mean, that's what happened, right? They finally figured out, oh, well, the counterinsurgency in Iraq worked because we poured money into infrastructure way too late in the game before, way too late before other people were radicalized and we had a huge loss of American Iraqi lives. But just the same, they learned the lesson and then just tried to repeat it in Afghanistan as if they're the same country. And but it is depressing because, you know, it was easy to read about the occupation of Iraq and see such obvious errors. Oh, well, they didn't want to pour resources into it. But it's incredibly depressing to look at Afghanistan and see them trying to do that, and it's still being such an epic failure. And I think what's really difficult and what I tried to think about as I was reading the Afghanistan papers is that we all hold some responsibility for this. Because, yes, it's important to decentralize ourselves when we step into another country. But what we also did is decentralize ourselves from the foreign policy on sort of the other end, right? Like, we just stopped thinking about it. It didn't impact any of our daily lives. And it just kept stretching on and stretching on. And we all felt sort of powerless. We didn't hold our, because it didn't affect our daily lives or our daily pocketbooks. Although when you think about what this, the money they were pouring into Afghanistan could have done for climate change or our own opioid epidemic or just basic infrastructure needs. Or the Northern Triangle to deal with the immigration problems that we're battling now. Oh, my God. It's so depressing. But like we didn't do anything. We let this go on. We didn't demand an end. It's not like it played no role in past presidential elections. I think it did. I think everybody promises to end it because that is something Americans want, but not with the urgency of 
the end to the Vietnam War, which was impacting communities all across the country in a much more dramatic fashion. And, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that except for what we always say, which is we have to stop start paying attention and talking about these things with our loved ones and in our communities because just because a huge proportion of the young people in our community aren't coming back from Afghanistan or aren't going in the first place doesn't mean that it's not important. Just because we don't see the impact of the war in Afghanistan on an everyday level doesn't mean we should give up, you know, responsibility of paying attention and calling for an end to this. It has to end. And it's just, it's so hard, though, because I think our government has gotten so big, the military has gotten so big, the foreign policy conflicts we're involved in have increased in number and increased in complexity, and it's a lot. But if there's an American force in another country taking the lives of human beings, even if they're a different nationality than us, we have to pay attention to that. I don't disagree with anything that you've said. I also just have been marinating on how, I mean, I guess just life is. You're born. You immediately start working really hard, hoping that a few people will love you and maybe you'll love them, too. Hopefully it's the same groups of people. You kind of tolerate everyone else. You work incredibly hard. First, just to have enough in the world and then to have more and more and more in the world. And then you die. And that's and that's hard. That's a hard way to be. For our generation, for the people who are all kind of adults now here in 2019, it's that plus you learn that most of what you previously understood about history has a much darker component that you didn't learn. That as a species, we have been systematically decimating the planet. That as a species, we have used the biologically insignificant characteristic of skin color to justify all kinds of atrocities and taking a hoarding of resources for some groups at the expense of other groups. You learn that as a species, we have used biological sex to hurt each other and that all the things that are supposed to help us make sense of the world are also on the take. You know, that churches have wielded power against people all in the name of just, you know, more for us, more for us. and. At some point, I just don't know how much more our brains can handle, and I don't know how our brains can take responsibility for what's going on in Afghanistan alongside with everything else when it's hard to even get reporting on everywhere in the world the U.S. military is actively engaged and it doesn't affect us every day and we never think about it. This sense of I'm responsible for everything is both the answer and it is also the thing that feels like a breaking point on a lot of days. So I just don't I don't have a good rallying cry for what we should say or do about Afghanistan because it's not as simple as ending the war either. Once we've been somewhere since 2001, exiting is going to have its own set of complications. This will arguably more be more complicated than what's just happened in Syria. And so I, I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. Well, I mean, I think that when we say we take responsibility for 
the actions of the United States government because we are United States citizens. That can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. And hopefully, because we're such a big, dynamic, complex country, the results of that will also be complex and dynamic. Some people are going to be called, like we always say, to protest. Some people will be called to run for office. Some people will just be called to talk to their kids. But I think all of it has to come down to if the issue here is we didn't know what we were doing, then we all as Americans need to think about What should we be doing when we invade another country, when we use our military force? How is that best representative of our values as Americans? And that's going to sound different in a lot of different American communities. There are people who want to nation build in this in this country. There are people who want who want to be isolationist. There are people who want to use the full force of our military to wipe out entire populations. That's just the reality. But instead of seeding that conversation and instead of deciding that it's it's too hard to answer, it's always going to be hard to answer. And there's not going to be one, but we at least have to have the conversation. And we have to use moments like this with the Afghanistan paper to not just become despondent in the face of truly wretched decision-making at the top levels of the United States government. But as citizens to say, what do I want my government doing when it invades another country? Do I think my government should invade another country? What is our responsibility to the people of Afghanistan right now in 2019? I don't think there's one answer, but dang, we got to start asking the questions. In that vein, I think that this should become the biggest issue in the primary Mm -hmm. because it goes so directly to what the next president is confronting and needs to be able to lead us through. And when you see multiple administrations in a row making the same mistakes, it tells you how deep the problems are and how significant the consequences of those deep problems are. And so I really hope that this gets a lot of time in the December debate because there is a rebuilding that needs to happen here. There's probably a demolition and a rebuilding that need to happen here. And it's not just about Afghanistan, right? This is about kind of the momentum that takes over when our government takes a big risk somewhere and it doesn't pay off. And you see in this story about the the papers over and over Unwelcome news was not welcome because people didn't know what to do. They could tweak policy issues, but as to the bigger picture strategy, nobody wanted to even discuss it because they were at such a loss for what to do. And that cannot be the culture, certainly within the military, but within the United States government overall. Sarah, who do you want to compliment this week before we move to our main segment? I want to compliment the people of Utah specifically the Republican governor and conservative, for the most part, legislative bodies, you know, as the Trump administration continues to roll back and limit the number of refugees coming to America and giving local and state authorities the power to reject any new refugee populations. Uh, The people of Utah have taken a very different approach for a lot of reasons, 
in particular, um, the huge Mormon population in Utah that has a long history of religious persecution. They have welcomed refugees into their state with open arms and continue to do so, despite, for the most part, very conservative politics in the state of Utah. They even push back against the Trump administration and encourage them not to limit the number of refugees. And I just think that is to be applauded. I have a compliment for the administration related to the release of an American student who has been detained in Iran for more than three years on espionage charges. This guy from Princeton, Jiwei Wang, was traded for an Iranian scientist that had been in the United States. Here, that scientist had been accused of violating trade sanctions. And the the administration said, you know, he was only going to be here like another month anyway. And so this was kind of a, a low price to pay in the kind of transaction that was being facilitated. But to have this young man released, which is a wonderful thing, to have facilitated this with the Iranian government in the midst of all the tension that we have with Iran right now, I think is a really good thing. And I think this shows the the good work that is still being done within the State Department, despite all the stressors on the State Department right now. And I am grateful for this young man's life. And I am hopeful that that good work can be built on so that we have um, a healthier relationship with Iran in the long term. I think we're very far from like, this is breaking ground in that relationship. But brick by brick, you know, maybe this helps along the way. Well, and this poor man had not, I don't think had seen his Either the baby wasn't born when he was first went over to Iran or he had not seen it since it was a little bitty baby. So I'm so I'd heard a I think a podcast with his wife a long time ago and talking about how he hadn't really ever seen his child. So so glad that that family is back together. A lot of appreciation to the Swiss government that did a ton to facilitate this swap as well. Next up, we're going to try our level best to tackle all the lawsuits the Trump administration and President Trump are involved in. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Pantsuit. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters, 
Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. It's a big week in Washington as we are recording. The Judiciary Committee is meeting. There are lawyers rehashing all the things that we've already heard from the Intelligence Committee hearings. We are likely to see articles of impeachment from Judiciary by the end of the week. The Judiciary Committee has released a report on impeachable conduct. We expect to have the Inspector General's report this week about how the Russia investigation kicked off. Lots of legal things and political ones swirling around the president. And with all that happening, it's easy to forget that this president is just in court all the time. Look, he just all the time, all the time is in court. It's so hard. I mean, when we sat down to do this episode and we started looking at the list of lawsuits, we were like, well, should we try to tackle administration lawsuits? Because fun fact They're unprecedented. 88 lawsuits involving state's attorney general, the most since President Reagan. I think the most Obama got up to was like 38. We're at 88. But then you have all these lawsuits against him personally. And then you have this like weird mix where it's sort of just about him personally being president. I don't know. There's a lot is what we're trying to say. Well, there are business issues. There are things related to his life before being the president that are still in the mix. It it is just a mess. So we're going to walk through kind of the lawsuits that Donald Trump has been involved in as either a candidate for president or president himself first. And that includes First Amendment lawsuits about him blocking people on Twitter. Just I have to stop and let that sink in a little bit. 
Well, I mean, I just kind of forgot about all the First Amendment stuff. I feel like that one gets lost in the emoluments, financial records lawsuits. But yes, there are several First Amendment lawsuits against the president for blocking people on Twitter. Okay, so we have First Amendment. And then we have all these lawsuits with regards to the emoluments clause. You know what I never thought about until Donald Trump was president? The emoluments clause. Never got any play. Was not something that was getting lots and lots of legal attention. But here it is. Here's the actual clause. No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States. And no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of Congress, accept of any present emolument, office, or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. And it's tricky. We don't have a whole lot of legal precedent about emoluments Mm -hmm. because, to your point, Sarah, it's just not something that we've had to think about. It's been pretty straightforward. You don't profit off your office, just kind of fundamental to service in the U.S. government. But we have three lawsuits going on about it right now against this president. So Crew, a watchdog group, has sued the president based on emoluments violations on behalf of hotel competitors. Basically, the idea is Trump builds this hotel in Washington, D.C. He's the president. So obviously, people are going to stay at that hotel to curry favor with him, and it harms competition. A big problem with the emoluments clause is we don't really know who's allowed to enforce it. So this case got thrown out on standing grounds, the idea that the people trying to enforce the emoluments clause really can't do that. But it's been reinstated. There are going to be further hearings. We also have attorneys general trying to enforce this. The District of Columbia and Maryland have sued the president. It also was dismissed, but we're having arguments to see if it gets reinstated. And then we have Congress trying to sue the president under the Emoluments Clause. 30 senators, 166 representatives. And this has turned into a separation of powers dispute because the Justice Department says members of Congress also don't have standing to enforce the Emoluments Clause. So, Sarah... Who do you think the framers thought would be the appropriate person to enforce this thing they wrote? Well, it feels like a little bit to me that every judge making this decision was sort of like focused on the trees and couldn't see the forest. And all of a sudden, they all looked around and were like, oh, crap, we're all throwing out these cases then who actually can enforce the emoluments clause? I think an additional thing that happened is everybody got sort of a fresh flow of evidence from the impeachment when you have the president of Ukraine saying, hey, I'm staying at Trump Tower. Did you see? Like, So they got they have this sort of like fresh flow of, see, we told you this is a problem. And everybody looking around and going, oh, wait, this means nobody could enforce it. Nobody would have standing to sue under the emoluments clause. Yes, it's, it's going to it's going to get interesting. Standing is both an incredibly important doctrine to restrain the judiciary to its proper role and a really effective way for courts to go. Not it. And uh-huh. I think this has just been a big like I am not going to be the person who allows the first emoluments clause enforcement action to go through my courtroom. And then they were all like, well, crap, we all can't do that. Somebody's somebody's going to have to do this. I mean, but the separation of powers thing is a big deal. 
if they because they're not just arguing that members of Congress can't not, don't have any standing to sue in the emoluments clause. I think the reason it's become a big deal is they're they're a little bit arguing members of Congress have no standing to sue, period. We just have this really well-reasoned opinion about why Don McGahn needs to come to Congress to testify. And the court said, look, Congress is the first thing that was written about in the Constitution. And where there is conflict between Congress and the executive, it is the entire reason that we have the court system as that third co-equal branch of government. It's really hard for me to look at the reasoning behind that opinion, which is just a really good review of, like, the constitutional framework and believe that members of Congress don't have standing to enforce the emoluments clause. I mean, it, that why do we have the judiciary if Congress cannot check the executive through the court system in that way? We also have a lawsuit over plain old record keeping, which might sound boring to you, but we just talked about the importance of record keeping and government in connection with the Afghanistan papers. We can't know how our government is doing and what it's doing sometimes without the transparency afforded to us by good record keeping. So again, crew, that watchdog group and the National Security Archive are suing the Trump administration over things like deleting messages on Twitter, for example, and using other really unorthodox ways to communicate. This is not part of that lawsuit, but I think we have massive security concerns over the way the Trump administration is communicating right now, too. I mean, we just had WhatsApp messages flowing through a hearing, um, a discussion of a call between the ambassador to the EU and the president of the United States on an unsecure cell phone. So there is a lot going on as it relates to record keeping in the Trump administration. Can you please just give me one small moment to say, but her emails, Beth, but her emails, because a huge part of this record keeping issue is that they're using their personal emails to communicate after running an entire campaign attacking Hillary Clinton. And her personal email server, and I know we're not supposed to do, but what about? I know, and I know it's not productive. And also I know if I don't have a small moment to acknowledge the massive hypocrisy of this whole thing, my head will explode. Is that good? Have we held space? (laughs) Yes. Okay, perfect. We also have a lawsuit about the Trump campaign sending mass communications of promotional messages that a recipient did not consent to receiving. I have not read much about this case. I am interested to dig into it a little bit because I think I get a lot of mass communications of promotional messages from all kinds of candidates. I can't imagine that that goes very far, but it's on our list. Much bigger is the New York State lawsuit against the Trump Foundation for self-dealing and coordinating with the Trump campaign and generally not behaving like a nonprofit foundation. We also have lawsuits against the Trump security team for assaulting peaceful protesters in 2015. I did not even know about this. We follow the news and it got buried underneath all these other lawsuits, even though this to me seems like a pretty big deal. It's amazing how much we don't know about. (laughs) Oh, my God. On any given topic, when you start doing research, you just think, What? And this was no um, exception to that rule. I just I can't believe how much this administration is doing. And I I really want to understand 
who's paying these legal bills? Mm-hmm. How often is the president taking meetings on these cases? Because when you're involved oh, in a lawsuit, that. it's incredibly time consuming. Oh, no, I know the answer to that. None. He's not spending any time on this. He's a no. Mm-mm. You think he's following all this stuff? He doesn't care. I don't know. I mean, you'd think he would have to at least be making some calls as a client in some of these cases. I don't well, I mean, he he has a finely tuned approach to this because what was the the amount of lawsuits he was involved personally before ever running for president? It's like it's we're getting there. thousands and yeah. thousands. It's, yes. it's a lot. We're getting there. Related to this assault on protesters, there is another suit alleging that Trump encouraged an atmosphere of violence and anti-Trump protesters were subjected to attacks and racial slurs being led out of a rally in 2016. Then we get into the sexual assault category. Ugh. So there are five lawsuits related to accusations of sexual assault against the president, one involving an allegation of rape, two involving sexual assault, and two involving defamation. Trump, of course, says all these accusers are lying. A driver has sued him for unpaid overtime. There is a lawsuit involving Trump and children and his children defrauding investors. And then there are the three lawsuits related to trying to get financial information about him. So we've had several decisions about these recently. You've probably seen these um, come up to the top of the headlines. So the Supreme Court has issued a stay after the United State Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in New York said that Deutsche Bank and Capital One must cooperate with subpoenas from the two Democratic-controlled committees in the House of Representatives. And then there's also a lawsuit involving his accounting firm, The Supreme Court has issued a stay on that decision from the appeals court. That was earlier this month. So we've got two lawsuits regarding these financial records and two stays from the Supreme Court that says you don't have to turn these over until we hear the appeal. So remember, that whole list is not a lawsuit to stop an executive order related to the travel ban or immigration. We're not doing any of the policy stuff. This is just like personal conduct and record keeping that we're going through. But none of this is new. As Sarah said, in 2016, USA Today did a profile about Trump and litigation. He has been a plaintiff, the person who filed a lawsuit, 1,900 times. And a defendant, 1,450 times. He has been involved in bankruptcies his own, and those of others, 150 times. His companies have been involved in more than 100 tax disputes, most prominently in November 2016. He paid $25 million to settle litigation related to Trump University. Was that one of the biggest settlements? I mean, he clearly was just trying to get that out of the way, or I wonder if he would have continued to fight that. I don't know. There, a number of these suits have been settled, which creates a real absence of transparency on how these things ended. You know, his litigation record looks pretty good in terms of wins and losses for the cases he took through to conclusion. But that's not many cases of this barrel. It's more that he uses lawsuits to wear other people down, force them to spend a bunch of money and then make it go away. So we did get a question about why so many of these lawsuits, particularly pertaining to Trump's personal businesses, life choices, um, involve the Southern District of New York District Court. And that is because that is the district court that encompasses New York, Bronx, all the Manhattan and the islands 
where he lived for many, many years, where much of his business took place. Um, I believe that's where the Trump Foundation was formed. And so that's why you see that particular court and those prosecutors bubbling up over and over and over again. Yep. And a lot of his records have taken place in around Florida, too, because of his properties there. It's normal for businesses to have quite a few lawsuits, but this is a pretty staggering amount. Yes. As with everything with Trump, right? It's go big or go home. Lawsuits are no different. Big and golden. So I was thinking about what does this mean? Like, does this matter? And I think it's really interesting that he has used the judiciary so much and constantly tells us that judges are not credible. Judges are terrible. They're biased. They need to be removed. But also sort of the reason for being of his presidency and the record that he and the Republican Party have to run on in 2020 is about the federal judiciary. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code podcast 15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. 
Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Yeah, and I just wonder if that's enough. I wonder if putting all your chips in that corner I don't know. Where do you put chips when you play, when you gamble? Anyway, is risky, especially if you're a person who campaigned the first time on draining the swamp and getting things done. I don't know if it's enough to stand up and say, oh, well, what I got done was a bunch of judges because you don't want activist judges, right? You think judges are bad and you think using the courts to put forth your personal policy goals and your government objectives is definitely the wrong way to do it, right? And so if you are arguing that judges are the key and that's sort of the record you have to stand on, I think that is, that's very sort of shaky ground. I keep thinking about this quote I read in the New York Times, big, big piece on Rudy Giuliani. And I I don't remember who said it, but it was a scholar that basically said, you know, with impeachment, with Clinton, with Nixon, with Trump. It's never about policy. It's always about personal vendettas or sort of personal weaknesses. And that's what I see when I look at this lawsuits. When I see all these lawsuits piling up, I think it's going to catch up to him eventually. The way he runs his life, the way he acts as president, the way he treats people, the way he makes business decisions, just all of it. Like, when you look at this long list, I just think it's got to catch up with him eventually. Well, at some point, he's going to have to encounter something that is not just tactical. Mm. That's what these lawsuits have been for him. They've been tactical, right? This person is giving me a hard time. I'll shut him up with a lawsuit. Oh, this person's suing me. Let them. We'll fight them to death until they run out of money and energy for it. It's just tactics. It's not about anything. And that's why I really continue to believe impeachment is supposed to be a political process because you can always get tripped up somewhere legally. Way too much of the law is tactical. It kind of has to be. That's where a lot of our protection from the incredible power of the judiciary lies. But at the same time, it's often a really bad way to get to the truth and what's actually right, good and fair. And so I think impeachment does need the flexibility to be about just what's the truth and what's right and good and fair. It should be about the personal characteristics of these people, because the judgment is, should this person remain in office? Have we seen enough that tells us that on a character basis, this person should not remain in office? The other thing that I was thinking about as we read about all this is that we know, we think we know at least, that 
Trump and his organizations have paid very little in taxes. And I am such a strong believer that the judiciary should be open to everybody. I think there are really good reasons that we don't require the loser in a lawsuit to pay the cost and that kind of thing. But it burns me to think about the cost to taxpayers of the court system being a a weapon for people like Donald Trump when those people really proudly talk about how they don't put anything back into the system. You know, judiciaries are notoriously poorly funded compared to other aspects of state government. And this just bothers me to think about. It just bothers me to think about how much the public has had to contribute for these lawsuits to be tactical devices for Trump and his businesses. Well, when I start thinking about the financial disclosures in particular, I think what's really going on? There's a part of me not to I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist, but like I don't think that they would go to these links just because they didn't pay their full share in taxes. We already knew that that already came out. So what else is contained in these financial disclosures? I mean, not to mention, you already have a whistleblower in the IRS saying I was directed to do things I shouldn't have to protect his financial records. So. I mean, I don't I don't even know. I can't even I can't even guess as to what's in there that they don't want to get out so badly. But there's just a part of me that thinks it can't just be they didn't pay taxes. Well, and the the overriding point, I think, of talking through all of this is that it is really weird to have somebody in the most powerful position on Earth whose time and energy and exposure is sliced in so many different directions. And Mm -hmm. I know people are tired of talking about Donald Trump, and they are especially tired of hearing people criticize Donald Trump. And I understand both of those feelings. And also, we're about to elect another president, and I would like us to learn something. And I would like to elect someone who is not going to be this exposed, at least legally, Throughout their tenure as president. Right. And when we have people with giant businesses in this field, I think it's an important thing to think about. Well, we hope that you have enjoyed this delightful frolic through Donald Trump's legal landscape. We don't really have any great takeaway, except there is a lot and it's important. And hopefully one of these will end in a sliver of justice. Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? This Saturday, my church hosted an event called Breakfast with Santa, which I know is not an original title, but it was an original purpose for (laughs) Breakfast with Santa because we came together to make bags and crafts and package cookies up to take to our homebound members as we Christmas caroled. So it was like, if you're not a caroler, you can still participate in the Christmas caroling by assembling some gifts to send out with the carolers. And it was really fun. What I wanted to talk about is what happened at the very end before we departed to go caroling. So we had 
maybe 70 people. There was a really good crowd for a Saturday morning, especially all ages. We sat by generation, which was really fun. Each generation had a different color ornament and there were baskets in the centers of the tables and you wanted to get all the different colors in the basket so that you made sure you had an intergenerational table. But what happened at the end that I thought was just world-changingly brilliant stuff was that our um, pastor, Diana, said to everybody, okay, all the kids raise your hands. And so they did. And she said, I need you to go clean up all of the toys over here. They had been having like an imaginary snowball fight and there was just stuff everywhere. And so the kids all like jump up together and go clean up. And then she said, all the adults, I need you to put these chairs away. And I could not get over how impactful it was to say to a group of people, you are responsible for cleaning up after yourselves now because you're not a consumer here. Mm -hmm. This is a community and we are all taking care of this space together. And I told her the next day, that was brilliant and I think we should do it for everything because where else do you get an example of everybody being responsible for Picking up and chipping in and working together and people from age three to age 80 can help here in some way. I just thought it was the most beautiful thing. And I am advocating for all of us to take that into our groups everywhere. Like, let's just start announcing it's time to clean up now. Well, then I have an equivalent experience that I hope won't be very controversial when I when I make the case for an extension of your everybody clean up now. We had a busy holiday weekend. Um, we had the Paducah City Christmas Parade on Saturday night. And then Amos and I went to the symphony. He promptly fell asleep five minutes into the performance and slept through the entire show. But I enjoyed it greatly. When we were at the Christmas Parade and we were sitting with our friends and yelling just constantly at our children to back up, back up, get out of the street, get out of the street. But what happens is people come by, they sort of toss candy at the kids. The kids all die for it, pushing them further into the street. Then they leave with bags full of candy they do not need. That then becomes a fight for the parents to police, like, don't eat your candy. Where'd the candy go? I woke up to Sunday morning to realizing, like, not all the candy had been secured, so they were eating candy for breakfast. We watched the street sweepers come down and sweep up easily a third of the candy that was left crushed in the street. They didn't even get all the way to the gutter, so there's still a big, giant mess. And so I would just like to advocate that we eliminate candy throwing in public parades. I second this unnecessary. Yes, it's unnecessary. All those in favor say aye. I can hear it in the future tomorrow when this episode comes out (laughs) ringing across the area. It's just so unnecessary and it's such a waste and it creates mess and hyped up children or even I would be willing to compromise and say like let's pick three floats in the parade that provide candy canes or provide candy but like every single float it's just so ridiculous so that that I agree with your it's time for everyone to clean up now, I would like to make our first public enforcement of this philosophy to be eliminating candy from public parades. Listen, I'm ready to amend your motion and go as far as to say, we just don't need to send our kids away with a thing from everything they Mm -hmm. attend. They don't Mm -hmm. need a gift bag. They don't need a party favor. 
They don't eat candy from the parade itself is the gift. Going to the birthday party itself is the Mm -hmm. gift to you. You know, Mm -hmm. we I don't understand why we're all putting all our dollars into Oriental Trading Company, for God's sake. You know, like, let's just stop with all of the crappy little handouts. And my kids love them. They absolutely love them. And then a couple weeks later, I'm picking little pieces of them from out between Mm -hmm. couch cushions. It all winds up in the garbage. And I feel like we're not doing a good enough job saying, no, the presence of other people, the experience of being with other people is what you get today. Or the teeny tiny chicken nuggets and hamburger. I'm looking at you, McDonald's. We don't need a Happy Meal toy. My middle son always wants to go to a McDonald's. And the other day, my, my mother went, if the, if I told you you couldn't get a Happy Meal, would you still want to go? And he was like, no. And I'm like, OK, then you don't actually want to eat there. You just want the cheap, crappy prize. Oh, I just I want it all gone because I do feel like the dog chews it up. It's just one more thing to, for me to pick up. I told my husband I really want to focus on in 2020 a place for everything and everything in its place, which means if something comes into the house, like it needs to find a place. And if it doesn't have a place, then we either need to really think about why we're bringing that particular category of item into the house in the first place, or we need to throw it away. And I don't want to keep throwing things away. I don't either. I just I want to stop with all of the stuff. And I don't want to raise children who believe that they are entitled to take something out of every room they walk into. Yes, I totally agree. Okay, well, I mean. We solved that, right? I'm sure everyone's going to be is there like, somebody? Yes? Is, is there some sort of czar of Halloween or parade <laughs> candy that we need to lobby? Or is this good enough? I think this would probably be good enough. I think I might actually lobby my local parks department and say, can we please not? I'm going to work on it. I'm, I will report back. Well, and I will make a commitment not to give party favors this year. Like when we yes, host our too. birthday parties, we're just we're not going to do the favors. And we will hope that other parents follow suit as well. Thank you all so much for joining us today. We will be back with you on Friday. We expect this to be a fairly news intensive week, which kind of makes me laugh as I say it out loud, because what hasn't been here in 2019? But we'll cover everything that's been happening. You can stay with us on Instagram stories where Sarah does her excellent news brief in the mornings on Patreon. You'll get a deep dive on one story Monday through Thursday with me. So lots of ways to stay in touch between now and then. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.